I'm Gil Malay, and this is my instrument, the Percussitron. From percussion and electronics, it doesn't work if you don't plug it in. And I'd like to show you some of the things that it does. Come on, magic screen, come up with something. Have you worked in them? Not for real, but I've been drilling for three months. Thank God for an expert. This sort of thing's new to me. It's new to all of us. I mean, I'm scared. I never believed this could really happen. Well, it has happened. ¿Quién me iba a decir que iba a terminar aquí? Y lo que te falta. Con Eva siempre se sabe dónde se empieza. Pero nunca se sabe dónde se termina. minutes of this a fragrant nosegay yes uh, to encourage people to, to watch it because yes. it's a great I mean we'll just say from, we'll say from from the start we love this film I mean yes maybe don't watch it with your family it's not the kind of film that you want to uh, you know you want to sit there with your terrorize dog the kiddies. and you know cuddling your no it's not it's not children a, it's not um, it is grim but it is fantastic it is a feel-good film there, there are aspects of the aesthetics of the horror in it which are very interesting which yes. we'll, we'll talk about as we get into it the reason i raise this is we probably will do shows soon i mean we've got months to make these things now oh yeah we've still got our arthur shows to do we're going to make a double of all six arthur films because of course there's the, the two dudley moore arthur films there's the Russell Brand Arthur remake uh, that was made recently. But there's three Indian Arthur films. None of which I have seen. So we're going to watch all six of those at some point and do a kind of an, uh, a saga of uh, what happens when you're caught between the moon and New York City. Um, I, th- I think it'll be an interesting exercise. And I think from a sort of... Uh, cultural perspective it will be interesting to see how um, that sort of trope of the lost lost man rich lost, baby man rich baby man is uh, interpreted across different times and different cultures I think it will be really interesting so I think that will be another one where we don't talk for whatever yeah. it will be nine or ten hours but we should at some point probably do some actual alternative DVD commentaries I mean there are still movies out there which don't have any DVD commentary. Yes. Um, I was thinking about ones that kind of immediately leap out for me. Tomorrow I'll wake up and score myself with tea. Oh, fantastic. Which is my favourite movie. It's a Czech time travel movie which influenced Robert Zemeckis in making Back to the Future. It's probably my favourite film. And. Also holds, um, you know, if you 
don't mind me sharing this with our listeners, also holds significance for us as a couple. I think it was one of the first films we sort of watched together when we started going out. It's a very much a sort of family film yeah. for me. You can hear the funky oh, the music Bahana Disco music for the title is the soundbed now. Uh, funky Hitler. No one likes Hitler. I mean, but people actually, like Funky Hitler a bit less than uh, Maybe Hitler. we should watch Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit, yeah. And then... Uh, That's a good idea yeah. for a double. Mm-hmm. But what we might have to do is two shows. Because yes. I think that um, Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Score Myself a Tea does deserve to talk, talk about the whole movie. Oh, yeah. But we're not doing that this time for the Andromeda Strain. What we're going to do is pick out some, some choice scenes to kind of encourage people to watch it for themselves. Uh, but where I was going with this is... I don't think we should do the ending of this movie because no. we need to give audience some kind of, uh, you know, reward. There's got to be some kind of big Easter egg at the end of it. Uh, but if we're not talking about the end of this movie, that's quite interesting. What can we say? I think we can say that it clearly has strongly influenced George Lucas in making the first sequential Star Wars movie, what's now episode four. The ending of it, which is kind of a spoiler to say this, there's um, there's a kind of big atrium and ladders, and somebody has to do stuff with laser beams. Yes. We'll say that much. Yeah. Um, that's clearly influenced the bit where Luke and uh, Han and Leia and Chewbacca and the robots get inside the Death Star in Star Wars. I have to confess, I've not watched this particular. Oh, you've not watched the first Star Wars no, movie? No. Yeah. No, it's good. I, uh, I, I like uh, it. It's at, a good movie. at the risk of uh, eliciting scorn. Strong reactions. I'm not really into Star Wars. I mean, maybe the, I should be. The fir- but so the sequ- really... sequentially, the first Star Wars movie. It's interesting to talk about this actually in relation to the Andromeda Strain because so many aspects of this movie, the Andromeda Strain, do have a bearing on THX one one three eight George Lucas's first film, and obviously Douglas Trumbull, who's done uh, the graphics for the Andromeda Strain, also did uh, the special effects in 2001 A Space yeah, Odyssey, I mean, which was before this movie yes. and has had a huge impact and also left a, a very deep imprint on the, on the Star Wars movies. Uh, and Blade Runner and you know, Douglas Trumbull. You know, yeah. he's a, a vis- I mean, he's a visual artist in his, in his own right in the same sense that Orson Welles or Robert Wise or uh, Ridley Scott Yeah. Are. And it occurred to me that the other reason why this film is so interesting is it's one of the few films from that period where science is not the cause of something going wrong and scientists aren't bumbling megalomaniacal idiots. Yeah, they're not Frankenstein dabbling with uh, occult science in the lab and and asking questions that, you know, are... The, the threat comes from nature and science steps in to save humanity, which I think is very interesting. And at the moment, that's uh, uh, the hot button in Britain. <laughs> so we're going to have to make a conscious effort in talking about the Andromeda Strain now to get us to the end of the second act and leave the third act for audiences to sample for themselves. But there are themes. I mean, there are quite clearly plot lines and themes running through Robert Wise's movie which are resolved at the end but which are set up in the first two acts um, I, I would say I mean, is that a fair yeah result? I think so 
I might be off on one, but um You? I Never. also I also felt like tonally uh Andro- the Andromeda strain uh was very reminiscent of Under the Skin. It is very much like Under the Skin. Um, it's got again, not kind a of film I would recommend watching um in this particular time. So the the um the sort of intertitle that sets up the Andromeda strain. The acknowledgments reads, This film concerns the four-day history of a major American scientific crisis. We received the generous help with many people attached to Project Scoop at Vandenberg Air Force Base and the Wildfire Laboratory in Flat Rock, Nevada. They encouraged us to tell the story accurately and in detail. And that's a case of a, um, an intertitle setting up a movie, which is really crucial to the aesthetics of it because so yes. much of this movie... Uh, looks and feels authentic. The documents presented here are soon to be made public. They do not in any way jeopardise the national security. And this is reminding us of the fact that, of course, The Andromeda Strain is based on Michael Crichton's novel. I mean, that's better than the uh, sort of trope of horror films starting with the uh, disclaimer based on a true story. Restricted FM26, Department of the Army Field Manual, Biological Warfare in big red letters. It's been just a few seconds and already this is making me feel uneasy even though I've already watched this film once. It's really effective as a horror film because it's not, it manages to sidestep a lot of tropes that we now think of as sort of cliche and corny for horror films. It doesn't try to be scary, it just is and it's just sort of, it's very effective at doing what it says it's going to do at the start of the film. We sort of are made to feel as if this is just a document and we're just watching it. Yes. And there's there's a possibly quite confusing narrative strain uh, of that actually what we're watching is we're watching a narration of a, a disclosure of events subsequent to the yes. film. To a, a congressional committee yes. in Washington. You know what this this uh, beautiful and really af- affecting and creepy title sequence reminds me of a lot is the titles to uh, the BBC's play of Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape. Okay. And of course, I the radiophonic music from that 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 very creepy radiophonic workshop. Um, it's also giving just me just strobing um, sound. It's giving me the vibes um, similar to the conversation. Yeah, actually. very much like the conversation as well. So I first saw this film. I was probably about eleven or twelve on television, you, and it really no. scared me. You were too young to yeah, watch I, that. I think possibly my mum may have dropped the ball there. We're going to skip scenes, but we're starting off with um, Robert Wise's very interesting choice of a kind of grey, oversaturated, just very dark, the contrast in all these sequences shot in the desert and his grey uniform and the grey van and the red interior. Yeah. You can watch this movie with the sound off. Oh, absolutely. Just for the Trumbull's graphics and the, the equipment. I mean, you'll miss these beautiful strobing sounds. Look at that. It's a, a printer with one of those mapping pens. 
on an arm. I don't know if you know anything about this, but I wonder if there were any issues with the studio. Because a lot of this film is so... Um, it relies... I mean, it has a fantastic score, but in many sequences it, it also just uses ambient sound very effectively. It's very minimalist. Um, so I, I wonder if there were any issues with you know the the Hollywood studio wanting it to be more you know more Hollywood well of course it's 71 so this is after Easy Rider and what's so interesting about it being Robert Wise is that Robert Wise is, is arguably one of the Hollywood greats certainly of the 50s 60s and 70s uh, who because of that huge fight between um, Wells and Bogdanovich on one side and um, Pauline Kale on the other about Ambersons the, the sort of Orson Wells fan base blame wise for in their view wrecking Ambersons though of course what made Orson Wells version of the Magnificent Ambersons shot for RKO just ineffective as footage was sound that he'd used lots of experimental uh, cranes and dollies and tracks, but he hadn't thought about recording diegetic sound. Particularly, there's a famous big party sequence in mm. Ambersons uh, with these great long tracks going through the middle of the party, and you can hear the wheels turning over as they hit each track <coughs> in the, um, the the raw footage that Wells shot. So, you know, Wise, Wells was sent off to make It's All True for the War Department. That's a, you know, a whole other podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Wise carried the can. Wise gets blamed by Wells fans for having ruined Amazons. But no, it was, I mean, it's a watchable movie. It's not, I don't think it's a great movie. But, I mean, at the end of Robert Wise's career, he was doing things like Star Trek The Slow Motion Picture. Mm. It's actually Star Trek The Motion Picture, but, you know, it's affectionately known as that to... To, to Trekkies so I wonder on the point you're making about how innovative and experimental and the risks the Andromeda strain yes. takes um, this waveform strobing effect and oscillator and that green line well that's the same image from the titles of the, of the BBC The Stone Tape and the music's very similar the fact that Wise had the freedom to create all these can we use the word trippy oh I I think trippy's the word there's almost a set and so here we've got uh, an air force fighter going over the uh, I mean that is just a fantastic shot of the desert landscape but it's the contrast between how precise yes. and accurate all these shots of yes. the camera in the in the fighter plane and the face of the pilot and this kind of smeary saturated grey indistinct yes it, it's just it, all grey yes it, it also the film takes uh, a lot of risks in how restrained it is ah now so here's I think this is the key shot so can I I'll, I'll part my previous point 
I think Robert Wise was looking at things like Easy Rider and he was looking at the trip. Yeah, I mean, here we've got um, some kind of, what is this kind of... Um, night vision. Night vision shot, night yeah, vision from shot. the plane. I think Robert Wise was looking at all this experimentation, particularly with film stock, uh, the influence of liquid light shows at rock concerts, how that was affecting the audience's boundaries in terms of what they actually were prepared to sit through. I mean, the whole Stargate sequence at the end of 2001 is a trip. And, yes. Uh, although, I mean, subsequently when Jodorowsky was looking around for people to do the art direction effects for his Dune that ended up never happening, and he went to Trumbull Studio, he came out um, saying that Douglas Trumbull was not, he's not my spiritual warrior. I want my spiritual warrior. Trumbull's not, um, he's not a freak. You know, he's a very sort of sober, button-down, serious technician. Um, but there was something about that sequence which the counterculture absolutely seized on. And famously, Gene Youngblood in the LA Free Press wrote this formative essay, 2001, uh, a masterpiece, claiming that movie for the counterculture. So suddenly you had... Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda and George Lucas and their friends who were kind of already somewhat in the system like Francis Ford Coppola but were who, who were kind of part of the counterculture in the freak scene but also had a foot in mainstream Hollywood. You had the younger generation of filmmakers um, starting to get some kind of foothold but the studios were now meeting the filmmakers halfway so you have Robert Wise using all these visual and sound techniques and just colour in a way which is almost sort of synesthetic. It is kind of like a drug trip. But then also sequences like this where now the army's now kind of collecting up the scientists to form the, the team who's go who are going to deal with this. Uh, I mean, this could be from the President's Analyst or the Iger Sanction or, um, you know, it's very crisp and technicolour. Yes. We're now, you know, we're clearly in a, in a world of Ivy League educated serious government people it's great watching it on a Blu-ray uh, you know digitally restored print as well because you see how I mean, isn't it crazy how we've we've gone from the greys of the of the desert sequence now to the, the technicolour in this sequence yeah there's a fire sir I mean, you made this very interesting point earlier on about this film being about how methodical scientists are. And, and I've got a couple of um, pet theories to put to you about this movie. I'm interested to know what you think. So my first theory is, I think, a film like The Andromeda Strain or The Year of the Plague that we're going to watch afterwards, the Felipe Casals 1978 Mexican version of down with the foe's 1722 novel, or Contagion, the Stephen Soderbergh film. Yes. I think they're distinct from zombie films. And then I think you've also got a class of movie, like 28 Days Later, that's somewhere in between. Yes. And I think World War Z, not a good film. 
not a great film very interesting novel it's certainly it would be interesting to do a show about because i i think the novel is very interesting and i from what i understand the production history of the film is quite tortured oh yeah yeah and it went through quite a few iterations and the film is clearly a mess um, Brad Pitt was trying to get it made for a long time yeah. and it wouldn't fit with his schedule yeah, and they kind of couldn't get the tone of the movie right no, either no it's got, I mean it's got great sequences I mean the bit where all the, the people turn into zombies in the plane oh well, they're in a plane oh there you go you know if this was a Brad Pitt movie there'd be zombies by now on this TWA flight yes and sudden and miraculously the plane would crash and the two people who the plot requires to be alive will survive a <laughs> fucking plane crash <laughs> but what we get with Robert Wise's film is the beautiful decor and materials of 1970s America the formica edging on that um, toilet and now now we're in um, so the previous sequence we saw Arthur Hill who's the chief scientist Dr Stone now we're in the bedroom of uh, David Wayne's character who is more kind of curmudgeonly Burgess Meredith type scientist Dutton so this is kind of like the Waltons that you know Ma Dutton and possibly it's his sister or her sister and out and in comes the grandchild yeah grandpa's got to go and fight the virus war now but it's the, it's the way in which um, they're grey again so you've got these amazing kind of Clock wallpapers. Everything's brown. Well, the the way that the desert is shot in this film reminds me of it looks like the moon. So I wonder if they reference the moon landing images. Wow, I had not thought of that. That's incredible. That's a very very good point. Yeah, because all the equipment that we're seeing. So we're now in the lab of uh, Kate Reed, who's playing Ruth Levitt. Uh, and she's the kind of chain-smoking lady man scientist that you know she's first-wave feminist, not accepted as a serious scientist in her profession. So of course she's she's hitting the booze and chain-smoking. I mean, you know, I imagine if you're a female scientist in the 1970s, you would be hitting the booze too. Is it just me or is it suggested by just that interaction with her, I presume, Asian American assistant that she's, it's trying to set it up that she might be a lesbian? And now we're in, a, we're actually in surgery and this is the fourth member of our fantastic voyage team of scientists that we're putting together. And this is um, James Olsen playing Paul, the kind of younger Steve McQueen guy. And I should point out, that, that scientist who was looking at the back of his head in Scrubs is Michael Crichton. Oh! Yeah, he gets the Alfred Hitchcock camera. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's quite sweet. But so here are my two pet theories. Second day. Here are my two theories. My first theory is I think that this movie is about the My Lai Massacre. More than it's about Fred Hoyle's panspermia thesis, which is that life mm. on Earth originated in 
the stars, that it came to Earth in an asteroid, and that what Michael Crichton then did with the panspermia thesis was he thought, well, what would happen if if that organism was a potential virus? Yeah. Uh, so it is about that, but I think, in fact, underlying it is the idea that it's about the Milai massacre because they've got a lot of helicopters. Yes. They've got the army showing up in a village and yes. dead people lying around everywhere. I think what this... And so now we're going to Senate Committee on Space Sciences closed hearing, April the 14th, 1971. Now, I think this is pretty uh, pretty risky, actually. That he's sticking what's basically a bookend to the chronology of the yes. story, having set the movie up. Yes. We're now actually outside the timeline of the movie. And you would think this is, this is an event that's happening after the scientists have been gathered. But actually, this is happening after the movie. Yes. It's very bold, I think. It's as bold as, as Citizen Kane or other, other movies from the 40s which jump around with memory yeah, and chronology. Because I, I think this works... I think this uh, works with the literary source material. Um, because World War Z does the same thing, that the book also has... Um, a narrator who is the person writing up the report and telling the story of how uh, how the zombie epidemic happened but the film completely abandons that so I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that a lot of films, a lot of books do this but a lot of films don't but it's interesting that they've carried that narrative strand from the book into mm. the film I think that the narrative of the Andromeda strain contains within it a kind of a viral load it's got a kind of a, a pathogen that's snuck in there which is a critique of the military industrial complex Yeah, this is quite clearly a critique of the power of the American military in the early 70s again another helicopter the scientists are now going into a helicopter. We're going to have this very grim sequence in the town with all the people who've died from the virus. There's that crucial line when we get into the secret base where David Wayne's character, Dr. Dutton, says to Kate Reed's character, Ruth Levitt, um, which I used at the start of the show, uh, they brought it on themselves. Yeah. So in this very grim sequence in the town where they, they look at all the bodies... It's not really clear how did they do it to themselves that an object has come down from space which contains the Andromeda strain and the local doctor has very foolishly opened it up. Yes. Uh, now, So now we've got yellow. So they're dropping all this ga gas. Mustard gas, it's napalm. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, it's not even subtext. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to push this line too hard, but to no, me, it's, but it's kind clear, of obvious. I mean, come yeah. on, yeah. But isn't, I mean, isn't that interesting that Sir Robert Wise, who's quite a serious mainstream American filmmaker, is making superficially a kind of TV movie of the week, kind of airport novel, 
But actually, Michael Crichton is, in my view, not an unserious writer, no, certainly early on in his career. Not. And his, the source material gives Robert Wise enough flexibility that actually he can make you know, US Air Force, the helicopters landing, it's me lie. And here the dust is clearing and the two scientists are in their hazmat suits. I mean, are they, are they, are, are they military detectives in the aftermath of the massacre gathering ev- forensic evidence of what's happened? I mean, if we, if we read it as a critique of um, America's actions in Vietnam, then the line, they brought it upon themselves, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. It's like, well, they're communists. Yeah. So. But then the fact that the older scientists... No, I mean as a critique of America. Ah, yeah. That, that works know, that way yeah, as well. Yeah. Because yeah. I think there might be some significance in the fact that it's, it's the older scientist, Dutton, is saying to the woman, you know, the kids are dropping out. Maybe we should have done. And she says, well, you know, we've got our call-up cars. It's an emergency. We've got to serve. You know, we should have dropped out too. But there's this sense of the chaos of the Andromeda strain is quite clearly, oh, no, it's incredibly grim sequences of everybody. I mean, I have suddenly died. I am, I am actually just sitting on our sofa. I am squirming. <laughs> Given the fact that we're living through an actual pandemic, yeah, this, this is now is, very hard this to watch. Very uncomfortable. But that is a sign of how effective it is yeah. as a piece of filmmaking that made in 1970-71 still packs a punch. I mean, if people watch this at home, you're not going to have a good time. No. And this, this, the use oh, of this, this, all these, uh, these keyhole frames yeah, and the, the way that these. This, the, um, so we've got the face oh, of an old guy no. who just suddenly died with his hearing <laughs> no. aid in his ear. Oh, I'm going to have bad Woman dreams. who's just suddenly died. No. But, to me, what Wise is doing with this sequence is he's evoking little little girl who's just died with her rag doll on the floor. When, when, was, uh, when did Targets come out? It's it's making me. It's just that both films have such a sort of similar energy in the way they use just that restraint and silence and hippie chick with a with a breasts out and a peace sign. But I mean the duality in that image is it's so the woman with the peace the the naked hippie chick with the peace sign the old woman with the crucifix yep. is you know. None, your counterculture, your culture, none of it's helped you. The virus nope. doesn't doesn't choose who it, it's going to use as its host. I think it's text, not subtext. But it, but yes. you're right in that it's not just. And now we've got people who've gone crazy because of the virus and have committed suicide. So it's an old woman hanging in a stairwell. Oh no! And the cat's been. She's killed the cat as well. But it's it's also the fact that it's this kind of very grey. And Gingham, sort of Norman Rockwell painting version yes, of America, and absolutely. then the guys from the seventies in there. Well, um, they look like, but they look like spacesuits. They're they're biohazard. Um, so the, the Apollo the astronauts are now going yeah. onto the strange alien world of America, yes. but they're doing it in these quite groovy hazmat suits, which look like um, they're a bit like the spacesuits in two thousand and one. Yeah, and they're a bit like the color of creamer. That thing you're given on planes instead of milk. Yes. That you stir in and it makes it kind of grey rather than a proper milk colour. 
So it's not just about Vietnam, I think you're right, because of course in Peter Bogdanovich's targets, the um, college shooting that he's referring to in a film made in the very, very late 60s, on the cusp of the 60s and the 70s, that's a, that's a college shooting from the 50s that he's referring to. So it's every college shooting, it's My Lai, it's the, the Korean War. In the way that everybody here has just suddenly been killed, it's Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes, absolutely. Given how powerful Malay's music is, I, I endorse your point. The silence, the use of silence in this movie as well, is really quite chilling. Tumbleweed. I mean, that's such a cliche in most movies. <laughs> but he just throws it away yeah. behind the, 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 the grey van leaving the grey lunar landscape of this... Mesa, this this little town where so what I wanted to talk about with the aesthetics of it is we think of viral pandemics and disease as being um, I should be careful in my choice of words here um, in the sense of a sort of zombie film as being quite sort of um, soft and involving sort of serums and that the nature of the contagion and the decay is quite organic and sort of has sort of a fuzzy, organic, liquid quality to it. Whereas what they've chosen to do with the Andromeda strain is the virus is a crystal. Yes. And as we're about to see, they're going to cut the... Um... So, yeah, they've found the... The source. The space vehicle, which has this space dust in and, and you know th this is the the moon rock from the moon that the Apollo astronauts have brought back but it's brought this virus with it but they're going to cut the the local doctor's um, arm to try and work out I mean you're the forensics person here is there would that be to work out when he died yeah he's looking at the guy's butt now to see what the bruising is uh, I believe the term for that is lividity. Yeah. Because the you know if a if a, a person dies in a in a seated position or in a particular position, um, say if someone unfortunately dies um, as they're and they're fallen to the ground. Oh, so he's cutting the guy's wrist yeah. open, but it's just the blood's coming out as powder. Yeah. So what do you think about as an aesthetic choice? Because I think that's a very good point because in, uh, I mean, this might be a very crude way to um, sort of classify this, but you're right uh, that uh, if we look at the sort of zombie slash pandemic genre, there are either wet films or dry films. Mm. So the wet films are not just the, the organism is, you know, makes you think of serum or blood, but also that there's a lot of gore in these films and a lot of sort of suppurating wounds and secretions. St stuff that you can simulate in cinema oh, with latex yes, and corn Yes, exactly. Syrup. Whereas this film, uh, and I think in this respect, uh, viewers might be interested in the zombie film uh, The Girl with All the Gifts, where um, it's a zombie pandemic film, 
but without spoiling the end of it, uh, the final form of the the causative agent that turns people into zombies is a spore. So again, it's quite dry. Uh, nothing to do with sort of mucus or vomit or mm. blood yeah, that we usually yeah. associate with yeah. um, with horror. What was the Natalie Portman? Annihilation. Uh, yeah, we started watching that. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of psychedelic version of the kind of spore yes. yeah. take on yeah. the alien virus. But what interests me about this is the aesthetic choice they've made with keeping it as a crystalline. Yes. A virus that turns people into powder, basically. Yes. Which, which is, again, very interesting because, uh, the nature of the, because of the nature of the causative organism, there's very little gore yeah. in the film. There's a lot of disturbing imagery of death, but very little blood, very little gore. So they found a little baby. They found one of the survivors they find in the town. The only survivor that they find in apart, the town. Apart from the, the guy they find in the Oh, of course, yes. And the baby is played by Roberto Soto. Oh. Well, I, I hope Mr. Roberto Soto, wherever you are, you're safe. Yeah. And healthy. I mean, he's a baby in this film, but it's a great, actually a great performance by the kid. It's interesting, there are s- several very good performances by non-speaking yes. performers. And I think, the, as we'll say in a minute, the equipment yes. has, a, has a performance as well. I think the scientific equipment and the helicopter and all the kind of military yes. gear, is a, they're also actors in the film. Yes. And Robert Weiss uses all the aspects... So he's the aesthetics, the way equipment looks, the softness of people's bodies contrasted with the hardness of the environment, yes. the graphics, the sound, everything about it aesthetically is... And nothing is too much. And again, I think this is why it's such an interesting film in comparison to uh, how science was depicted in a lot of Hollywood films from you know 50s, 60s, 70s, that there aren't any you know, bubbling liquids in Erlenmeyer flasks and... Tesla coils. Yeah, no, nothing looks like a sort of witch's brew. Um, all the equipment, everything that you see in this film is very precise. There aren't any unnecessary pings or too much colour. E- everything is really measured. And I think it, it lends a great deal of authenticity to the film, which is why it's so effective. And they've, so they've found an old guy, who, an old alcoholic who survived. So we end up with the only survivors of the initial outbreak are a very old, sick guy and this little baby. Yeah. Uh, and that, to me, resonates with so many images from the Vietnam War. Of, yeah. You know, an, uh, a, a grandma running down the road yeah. with the baby. Is that, you know, the natural thing when a community is at risk is for the very old to want to protect the very young. It's the human instinct of life to make sure that life can continue. Uh, and that's a pretty clear uh, bit of imagery that Wise is using in this film, I think. We're now cut to the inside of a kind of <clears throat> Washington DC war room as um, madmen with sideburns and all these water concrete guys are now deliberating about why do we tell the president? Can you imagine being one of these guys at the moment in the White House? Bloody hell. Just sitting around in a, in a 
wood panelled war room with maps and TV screens and phones going off and just like what advice do we give the president I don't know is it his nap time so my other thesis about this this movie is I think it's about the sacrifice of people in public service contrasted with um, the humdrum just with sort of people who are just kind of letting things just kind of roll by you don't actually have any indication that that the American public exists it's not that they're allowing all these atrocities and all this kind of this pandemic risk to kind of go on in the background and they're they're acting like nothing's happening it's not like George Romero's um, Night of the Living Dead in that sense there isn't a kind of you're a big Romero fan Um, and the one time I met Romero I got to tell him you'll tell your story about Night of the Living Dead oh it was one of the uh, first films that I got to watch sort of alone it was one of my first sort of surreptitious watches as a kid uh, because um, yeah I used to sneak off and uh, it, it would be on Indian telly very late at night so I would have to specially sneak out and watch the film and the first time I watched it I just couldn't believe um, yeah it, you know it made me fall in love with films um, I and I have to say I, I don't know what the general consensus is about the Tom Savini almost shot for shot remake of The Night of the Living Dead but I'm a big fan of that film as well have you watched the Tom Savini yeah I like, I like both of them and I, yeah. think, I think the Romero black and white original has kind of got the romance to do yeah. with it because it was a proper midnight movie yes. cult hit uh, but yeah I met Romero shortly before he died actually yeah. and I ended up, ended up sitting on the floor kind of squat next to him for about 20 minutes and he was kind of meant to be working he was meant to be there signing autographs though it was quite slow at that point during the day and I didn't want, I didn't want to be that one guy um, and I think I hope he saw that I was trying to not basically not bother him yeah. it, because the dude just wanted his money let's <laughs> be fair he basically just schlepped all the way to Brighton Seafront on a fairly rainy day Oof. you know to s- sign some autographs and you know I, I get some cash in his Mr. hand Mr Romero had done enough in his lifetime to yeah. just take it easy at the end by that point it was sort of like Mr Romero thank you for your service yeah yeah um, but I told him that story and he smiled oh oh bless we've been very lucky haven't we it's like I got yeah. to tell Romero the story about your initial kind of movie experience that we watched uh, Shivendra Singh Dugapur Senioroid Man and then we went to Pune and we Friends with, with P.K. Nara for the last couple of years of his life, the, yeah. the guy who ran the Indian Film Archive. We've been very, very lucky up yeah. to this point. We really have. So yeah, now we've got the we've got the two scientists, uh, Dutton and Levitt, have gone into what's ostensibly a a kind of government farm, experimental farm facility, but actually it's a super secret spy base. So now we're in. Man from Uncle or UFO on British television, the Jerry Anderson live action thing has got a secret government base hidden in the subterranean depths underneath a, a film studio. But in this, they're going to a cupboard with some spades and they're going down in a secret lift. And again, the, the contrast between their, their schleppy clothes, he's got this 
brown corduroy jacket and she's wearing a duffel coat and now we've kind of got the this fantastic uh, animated illustration of the uh, elevator shaft that's in the middle um, so it's three split screens we're seeing the animated sequence in the middle and then the two scientists on either end even though they're oh it's just oh so now we're in this new world of the scientists the scientists in their spacesuits have shown up and they've got to check into this completely steel environment with their special keys. I love these keys. It's the level of detail that's gone into every shot. And it's this beautiful world of America in the 70s and 80s of everything's brushed steel, this beautiful steel button, and this beautiful steel Yeah, not many plastic things in this lab. So they're, they're there in their schleppy clothes. She's got her duffel coat and he's got his corduroy jacket. I love this shot. So this is long steel corridor with harsh neon lighting over it. And it's all steel and now they've got to go in there in their brown cloth. So she's married. She's got a wedding. I hadn't seen that. So the, her character's very interesting. In the novel, she's a male character. Oh, okay. And then they were going to make her a, a kind of, I mean, to be frank, a secretary. And then... The screenwriter convinced why is actually she, she should have a leading role. So they've kind of. She's interesting that she's kind of got the lines. So that's beautiful red corridor, like the inside of the spaceship that in two thousand and one. Fantastic. Because each layer in the in the science lab is color coded. Yes. Color is so important in this movie. You were saying about the female scientist. That she's given. Sorry, what's what, her name? I shouldn't be calling a female scientist. The character's name is Ruth Levitt, Dr. Ruth Levitt. She's given male, a male, what were written as a male character's lines, but she's delivering them as a woman who's not taken seriously. And as you go on in the movie to see, actually she figures it out. So by kind of not using the tried and tested techniques that, that Stone follows, she actually figures out what the, what the organism is. So her kind of um, Jane Jacobs' first, first wave feminism approach to things does actually pay off. People should listen to women like Jane Jacobs. Generally, in American culture, I think if someone's telling you that you know um, your cities are not built properly, your infrastructure doesn't work, just saying. She looks like she's in chronic pain because of taking a load of systemic patriarchy for years. Will you follow me, Doctor Levitt? May I have your glasses, please? What for? They'll be treated and returned to you, Doctor. Well, they better be, or I'll need a white cane. Like she's been sort of crushed by the weight of institutional manspring. about the Podman hypothesis, which we haven't yet. She's really an oddball. We're lucky to have her. She's the best equipped of us to double up with Kirk and microbiology. Lovely keys. Olsen's got a red one. So this is the odd man out thesis. Uh, which plays a role in Crichton's novel, the idea that because, funnily enough, since you mentioned mansplaining, the idea is that because Olsen's not married, he can be relied on to hold the second key for this nuclear device. It's an interesting plot device in the novel because it actually turns out that it's a kind of bunk thesis that the Rand Corporation's come up with. It just kind of seemed like a good idea to give Olsen the other key because he's just the kind of reliable sort of guy that you could you could trust with a nuclear weapon I mean uh, in that is the again the sort of uh, 
so a, a tiniest bit of sexist uh, implication that he's a man without, you know, a ball and chain. Yes. So, you know, he doesn't have any pesky women in his life who can cloud his judgment. And well, without, without that, he will just, you know, his faculties remain clear and uncluttered. And it's just pure logic. I mean, it's a bit of a logical fallacy, isn't it? You could argue. I mean, all of these are sort of um, gross overgeneralizations anyway. But you could argue that someone's who, someone who has a family probably has more of a stake in the world not collapsing. Yes. Uh, it, well, it's interesting that Olsen's character is the member of the team who later on ends up kind of... Uh, relating to the african-american nurse yes that he's sort of representing not necessarily the kids but just a kind of slightly more uh open-ended mindset yes but it's sort of interesting that the they the film sort of posits this idea that you know he has the um most in in, in when it comes to a crisis situation uh in terms of probability he's the most trustworthy but actually think of the last few years all the so many um attacks and shootings and mass rampages have been carried out by single men yes there are very few uh, actually no university snipers who are women no it's just uh, you know the odd odd feminist going for Andy warhol with a with a carving knife and this is peak mansplaining now in this film. We've got Douglas Trumbull's beautiful graphics explaining the colour-coded way that the base operates. And uh, this is one of the many things about this film which I think is noteworthy, but so yeah. splendid. It, that it, he's predicted what... Look at that. He's, he's worked out what computer animation would look like before it existed. Yeah, especially uh, given the fact that even now when you look at a lot of contemporary films which sort of try and um, visualise a, a lot of even contemporary media now stops at the sort of stereotypical green screen with some black text. As actually a lot of contemporary media from the last 15 years is still stuck in the idea of what tech looks like whereas this film from the 70s it's just it, it really is a testament to the excellent design of this film as oh, a baby he's an interesting actor James Olsen who plays Hall the younger guy he's got the red key uh, he was in quite a lot of, of television uh, the uh, bionic woman fembots follow up mm. Uh, episodes. He's the kind of the uh, Howard Hughes guy, holed up in a hotel room in Las Vegas. Who ends up uh, bonding with Jamie Summers in those. But he was in a lot of things. Hawaii Five-O, and he's still acting. He's still around. Five ten p.m. No return to level one through this access. So now they're throwing their red overalls into an incinerator. 
as James Olsen's, it must be said, quite fine, finely toned arse. What do you think of the stuff about men's asses in this film? I like how this uh, film sort of treats uh, human bodies. It's not cold, it's just scientific. Yes, they're like specimens. They're yeah, like because they are things to be observed. Well, because each. Well, also they are they are sort of in this environment. Uh, it, I find it interesting that even though it's um, a film about a contagious infectious agent uh, from another planet, in this particular environment, in the lab environment, the biggest potential contaminant are the human beings. And their viral so load. Yeah, so it is treating the the scientists as what they are on a on a very sort of organic microbial sense they are walking fomites I'll, I'll defer to your your informed knowledge about pandemics oh, i wouldn't go that far to cause to call it informed call me an enthusiast well and that's i mean you know to, to be if you can't be enthusiastic about pandemic viruses from space what can you be enthusiastic about so around the yellow zone, uh, the lovely bit where she was walking through that sort of black goop to clean her feet. That is exactly like under the skin. Yeah, it looks so much like under the skin, doesn't it? So now we've got these kind of layers of decontamination that they're going through. Shall we skip forward a bit? Because we've talked for about half an hour now and we're kind of getting into the second act. Yes, can I just uh, briefly mention how um, the f commendable the colour choices are, that the orange zone doesn't look like a sort of um, neony orange, yes. or the yellow doesn't look like, um, I think it's very restrained, all the design in this film. Yes, and it was, it was still, the period we're talking about, kind of 69, 70, it was a a difficult time in America for colours because you had that kind of um, pea soup green and that sort of clotted orange colour. There's the, the famous line where Harrison Ford's character in American Graffiti is asking the guy in the other souped up hot rod car they're drag racing. He says, what is that? Is that is that piss yellow or puke green? There were a lot of dodgy colours around this time and the colour choices that, that Wise has made, and also presumably his director of photography, uh, Richard Klein, it's just very judicious. And this is one of the things I think is so interesting about this film, is how the surfaces and the objects and the equipment, the scientific equipment, has kind of got its own performance. Yeah, it's also, um, they've clearly favoured um, authenticity or as close to authenticity of uh, um, just sort of having very sort of a cheap, immediate effect. Yes. Well, this brings us to um, this sequence. I think this is the, the last bit of this film we'll, we'll look at in depth. The bit with the monkey. Oof. I mean, this is a hard film to watch. They're testing the virus they've got samples for obviously they've got the um the satellite that had the andromeda strain on it and they're now exposing and exposed a rat to it using this robot arm and the rats died 
So they've got this sort of robot arm and they're taking a, a rhesus monkey in a cage on the robot arm. So we've got the scientists operating this robot arm and very methodically introducing the monkey to the the sample of the Andromeda strain in the in the satellite. It's very tense now as the scientists are watching a, a glass screen being pulled aside and oh dear so now the monkey is being exposed to the virus it's blinking it's very distressed now it's shaking this is so hard to watch it's struggling to breathe it's fallen over and uh Yeah, so the monkeys died. Now, I mean, there are a lot of things about this film which I think are quite shocking, even by modern standards. We've now got the robot arm that's carrying away the dead monkey's body. It's been put in this kind of stainless steel container. Now, what do you think? Do you think they actually killed the monkey for this film? Um... Don't I hope not, but it's very impressive. Well, I mean, if they didn't, it's very impressive because that looked quite um, authentic. Well, it's interesting. So I can now reveal they didn't kill a monkey. What they did was suffocated a monkey. Oof. So the monkey passed out and lost consciousness, but they didn't actually kill it. And in fact, if we if we zip back. Obviously, this is this is great radio now. Listening to me rewinding to a monkey being suffocated for a Robert Wise film. But yeah, so we're watching the sequence again, and the monkey's passing out. Oh, and it's, ab it's about to cut. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, and so there it goes. Do you see that shadow? Yeah. So there's a shadow that just comes in from the yes, right of the shot. Across, that yeah. was the assistant director, and he was coming in with oxygen to revive the monkey. Oy because vey. even shooting it, they were worried that the animal was was going to well, die. That's an example of something that would not happen anymore. That would not fly, first of all, and second of all, I mean, it's great that we have CGI, which means that they don't took, they don't have to actually put animals through this sort of thing. I mean, I. I appreciate, uh, you know, the overall effect it's achieved, but uh, not really quite sure that it's uh, it's worth causing such intentional damage to a living being yeah, for just a film. A monkey. And that's coming from someone whose job is to study film. I mean, it's just film. Of course, the most notorious, uh, well, one of the most notorious instances of this is. Um, uh, turtle being decapitated uh, in Cannibal Holocaust of course, yeah. which was also real and of course the, those Italian cannibal films they were very strongly influenced by the Mondo movies where yeah. you saw a lot more mistreatment of animals all of which was, was unlike this film was filmed for real 
It's interesting to think about the fact that the Andromeda strain, which is 6970, this is before uh, the appalling accident on the set of uh, the Twilight Zone, the John Landis yes. sequence in the Twilight Zone, where Vic Morrow and two Vietnamese American child actors were decapitated by a helicopter because John Landis was criminally negligent. Uh, and Hollywood's changed a lot. Yeah. That's a very tough sequence to watch, and uh, rightly so. And yeah, I think it's because it's obvious to anyone that that's not an effect. But I think this is why this is such a powerful film, and why I think it is worth it is worth watching because it doesn't pull its punches. No, and it's a it's a landmark in the way science is depicted in depicted on film. Um, because again, it's sort of eschewing a lot of the sort of a mad scientist and a lab and massive Erlenmeyer flasks full of blue-green liquids bubbling away. And no, this is just grey and sterile and cold and repetitive and slow because that's how science works. And it's something that Alex Cox picks up on in his introduction that he did for BBC Two's Movie Drone um, which we played in part one at the end is the way that the scientists deal with the pandemic in this movie is how pandemics should be dealt with which is methodically on the basis of evidence uh, not in a kind of emotive way it's, it's still isn't it interesting how relevant this film is to what's happening to us, and by us I mean literally you and I in quarantine in this flat in Scotland, how much this film from uh, 50 years ago is directly relevant to, to our experience? It'll be, it will look just as um, pioneering 50 years from now. It's one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, I love The Andromeda Strain and I think it's also the film which really establishes that Michael Crichton as an author yeah. should be regarded as quite a serious, maybe not a literary he heavyweight. I mean, he's not a great stylist. Uh, he's not even great with plots in or characters. His influence. The topics, the stuff that he made the centre of his very kind of human, almost sort of Hitchcockian thrillers, because this is really a thriller at the end of the day, this movie. Yes. Listeners who haven't seen the movie will work it out. The nuclear bomb plays quite a key role in the, the third act, shall we say. But even in plotting something that's basically a, a race against time, it still touches on a lot of quite serious issues that we're still dealing with today. And in Crichton's other famous works, the Jurassic Park movies, based on his book, Westworld, robotics, gene sequencing. I mean, he's an amazing, serious science fiction author and he meets that criteria that um, our friend and colleague Mr Jeff Ryman put forward in his mundane science fiction thesis that it's about the implications of science and technology on people living in the very near future and of course with Andromeda Strain we're watching this 50 year old movie we're living in the near future that, that this film's about the virus is not from is not from space. It's it's from a transgenic virus that's jumped from bats, as far as we can work out. But the way that the science of it should be handled is still basically the same. The same problems that we see depicted in this. 
And I think aesthetically, it's, it's a very interesting film as well. It looks very modern to me. I mean, I kind of, I, I said, let's look at these two movies, and you'd not. You're, I mean, you're a Michael Crichton fan before we watched this. Yeah, I haven't read him in a few years, but yeah, as a kid, he was one of my favourite authors. Yeah. But you'd not seen this movie, and no. I'm really pleased that it's one of these movies it's... where I've said to you, like, you know, with targets. Darling, we watched Darling the other day. You loved it. Yeah, it was great. And at some point we're going to get around to watching The Conversation, uh, which which we haven't watched together yet. There's so many movies which mean an enormous amount to me and are kind of always playing there in the back of my mind. And it's great watching these things with you and that you, you're kind of getting the same same uh, reward from them. What, so what do you think of this movie, in a nutshell? Love it. One of the greatest films ever made. And what what is it about it that's great from your point of view? Um, it's it's so restrained, and it managed to ha- manages to have such a huge emotional impact, and it works as a thriller, despite the complete lack of any sort of high drama or shouting or raised voices or. Um, Fla- even flashy I like how restrained the film is and how it uses film drama so there aren't flashy cuts or edits or even the pacing it's astonishing how well paced it is despite these sequences which feel like they go on for minutes and minutes and minutes without being interrupted but actually it's a very fast paced film it's a masterclass in restraint. I think we should have a music break now. Let's do it. the handsome stylings of John Cameron and that was Liquid Sunshine from 1973 very nice I think it should be um, I was picturing it um, 
to both characters enter a house with white furnishings and a cream coloured carpet um, and it's David, uh, David Carradine and he's hooked up with a 22 year old ingenue who's too good to be true it's probably you, can tell, you can tell there's something wrong with her and they both you know start Ooh. dancing to this Uh-oh. and um, uh, David Carradine then starts to make a drink for her and then um, she's already taken out her samurai sword and uh, chopped him into two halves yeah you've given this a lot of thought it's, I mean, you've really put your back into I the image. I'm slightly like disturbed. It's an instantly but... vivid picture in my head. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, it's a very interesting guy, John Cameron, and I I played that, and I think you're right that it's kind of evocative of that kind of jello. Oh yeah. Uh, things taking a a sudden unexpected turn. It, unexpected and disturbing, but. Mm. Still slightly sexy. Yes. It's still quite disturbing. Yeah. Turn. It's yeah. sleazy, but sleazy yes. cool. Yes. John Cameron's a very interesting composer and musician from the early 70s. You'd be surprised at his portfolio of work in television and film and how much of a, an impression it's made on the public consciousness without people realising it's him. So um, just a few examples of the scores he did for films. Ken Loach's Kez. Oh, Psychomania! You know that yes. um, the motorcycle possession one that's got a bell read in about toad licking. There was a, a BFI yes. Blu-ray of that that uh, Will and Vic were very proud of a couple of years ago. Uh, and also, of course, and you can hear the music now on the music bed, the Peter Cook starer, the Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. It's sleazy, but it's sleazy cool. Sleazy chic. Which is very much Peter Cook, isn't it? Yes. There's that great line in The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. He gets married and they're going off to the, on the honeymoon and his bride says, uh, where are you taking me to? And he says, have you ever heard of a little place called Dudley Moor? <laughs> I love that film. Uh, but then loads of television work, the most famous of which is this recognisable to British listeners that is the top of the pops music from the 70s but of course most people would think that Whole Lot of Love the Led Zeppelin track is just what the BBC used but it wasn't it was um, a track done by the Collective Consciousness Society which is actually Alexis Corner's band Alexis Corner was a blues aficionado and broadcaster 
did a very, very good series with the BBC called Devil and Music about the musicology of blues. The second season of which I think is on the BBC iPlayer. Have we watched this? Yeah, we have yes, watched we it. Yes, we have watched it, yes. It's very, very, very good. He's a very interesting guy. Yeah. I mean, a lot, of, uh, a lot of great art is often that which is quite accessible and just sort of uh, embeds itself in our lives. Um, I have been watching a fair few uh, videos on YouTube of Bob Ross paintings. Um, and there's a reason why he's just become such a... Having his hot cultural moment. Because yes. of, of that Deadpool trailer as well. But I'll play a bit of that. Now, let's grab a trusty two-inch brush here. Whack that off real good. Just beat it like it owes you money. We're going to get a little dab of our yellow snow here. Mix that with just another little dab of our Betty White. Now, let's just dance in a happy little sky. And remember, this is your world. You get to make and break the rules here. Sweet baby Jesus. Wish I could jump in there and roll around in all that cascading white powder. Yeah, just get high in all of life's splendor. God, I love cocaine. So much. Holy fuck knuckles, I am high as a kite right now. That was Deadpool as uh, oh. Bob Ross. Oh, I don't remember this, but... Yeah, he's, basically he's, um, he's um, tossing off his paintbrushes. Oh dear. Oh. Well, it is Deadpool. But yeah, I mean, Bob Ross is definitely having a lot of cultural moment. And he was always there in, in the sort of collective unconscious. It's just that at certain moments, at certain times in culture, particular cultural actors just kind of bubble up to the surface like little kind of bubbles of excitement or bubbles of sort of relevance and I think the, the memes on the internet have made that more it's interesting it's kind of viral actually yeah I mean the, the memetic value definitely has something to do with um, his popularity but I think also just people enjoy spending time with his voice yes which is quite soothing and calming and nice. And it's just a reminder that often there are pub public figures who are just nice. And also that there are things in culture which are sort of quite soothing. So yeah. you wouldn't have thought that Daryl Hall and keen-eared listeners may have noticed. Uh, but Hall and Oates, who would have thought that they'd be popular with the kids, as they were a couple of years ago? But it's because, basically, because it's just quite soothing. Yeah. It's quite pleasant. Uh, that that um, Liquid Sunshine track, which I think was a piece of library music, I think you could, just, you could basically just use it in the background of, you know, you could play it in, in elevators or in, in shops and stuff like that. It was you, you paid one fee, you didn't have to pay a royalty on it. Uh, but it's got a very similar vibe to um, there's a track on the Shaft score, Isaac Hayes' uh, famous Shaft music, Cafe Reggio's. Okay. Which you can hear is the sound bed. Uh, very often incidental music that's recorded for movies and then comes out as 
a soundtrack album. The most famous example of which is probably the Saturday Night Fever double album. That every one of those tracks became a hit. And the film was in a sense designed to sell all those yes. tracks. But they kind of each have their own life independent of the movie, but also because of their role in the movie. So, uh, in a way, the sequel, Staying Alive, is a kind of lame tribute act to the earlier movie. Yes. This is unusual only in the, in the Western cinema sense, because this is quite uh, common with Indian films. That the songs have a completely different life life cycle. There are so many songs that people would just know all the lyrics to and stuff, but they would have no idea what film they were from. Yeah, I used to watch those film clip shows. Yeah. On the sort of nosebleed channels on when I had a satellite yes. package, where the movie that a particular hit song from Bollywood was from. No one remembered, no one cared. It, it, it was much more that moment crystallised a particular time in Indian cinema and in the in the lives of the people watching it. And that kind of, particularly, I think, with Indian films, it kind of gets transmitted through families, that you tend to yeah. watch movies with your family because you've got more, more of a culture of going to the movies um, collectively. And then obviously watching them on video or now on television or streaming... Those experiences become, you know, much more sort of pushpins in your memory of, of what you were doing at a particular time. In a way that pop music, yeah, used to very much so in Britain and America. Which is why, why something like music for Columbo or The Six Million Dollar Man or indeed that track, Liquid Sunshine, which is a piece of library music that you, know, you can play in a shop. It's interesting because it didn't chart. And a whole lot of love for the t as the top of the pops music mm. kind of did chart in the sense that people would go and buy an album of TV themes. But isn't that interesting that what they're reliving is the memory of watching something yeah. on television they're reliving a memory of watching bands, but it's not that music or that performance. It's the titles which kind of act as the frame or the bookend for that memory. Yes. Um, and I think that's another thing that connects the films that we're talking about, that both The Andromeda Strain and The Year of the Plague have very literal um non-diegetic sound yes. or non-diegetic music yeah, and I think that's that, that's what amps up the sense of dread and discomfort as a viewer uh, because you are sort of left alone with the harrowing yes. images on the screen yes and the s silence yeah you it's have to deal with it you have to deal with the discomfort and the silence. M music and sound is very important to both yes. these movies, but so is silence. Yeah. Very interesting. Of course, there's a link back to uh, the music break 
we had earlier on, which was uh, Irma Serrano doing the, the Spanish language version of Jatem, which is, uh, I mean, it's quite a sort of uh, complicated link back to our Mexican Batwoman podcast, the previous one that we did. That was released in 1968. Something else that was happening when that was on in Mexican cinemas uh, was Mexico was hosting the Olympics, first time that the Olympics had been held in a, in a developing country. And this coincided with a terrible period in Mexican politics when the state was uh, repressing student protests and this led to this traumatic incident in Mexican recent history, the Tlatelolco Massacre. Very odd that that Mexican Batwoman movie would have been on, you know, at the same time that people were being gunned down by the Mexican army in the streets. And the, li the link to the um, Irma Serrano track that we played is that she co-stars in and also directed this 1986 film with Isela Vega. Supposedly it was Vega who encouraged the president of Mexico at the time who carried out the massacre, Gustavo Ordaz, to send in the troops. So that relates to the film we're watching now, which is the 1978 film of Gabriel García Marquez's script of the English writer Daniel Defoe's 18th century Diary of a Plague Year. This is directed by Felipe Casals, who is a very serious, important Mexican film director, probably best known for another actually quite similar movie that we've uh, watched, Canoa, A Shameful Memory, yes. which is about an incident 10 days before the Tlatelolco massacre when students from Autonomous University, uh, they climb a mountain and locals in the village are encouraged to think that they're communists by the local priest and there's a terrible killing. Los cinco empleados habían ido de excursión a esa población de donde pensaban salir al cerro de la Malinche. La Malinche. Very harrowing, very very sort of carefully judged film I think quite similar in a lot of ways to the Andromeda Strain strangely enough and also this film we're now going to take a look at his uh, another Casals film based on the Defoe book and I mean I think what's what strikes me about that sequence of Kanoa that I just played and this film of Defoe's novel from Garcia Marquez's script and the Andromeda strain is really kind of my 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 pet theories about these pandemic movies. I think pandemic movies are different from zombie films and I think the crucial difference is zombie films are about what what would you do if everything was stripped down and it was just you versus the world. Whereas breakout films tend to be more about public service, about duty, about what do experts, scientists, doctors, people who are being tested, how do they respond, but how do they work collectively? You know, what's the team effort to deal with a threat? It's not just 
um, the Omega Man or the Last Man on Earth or I Am Legend or Dawn of the Dead or you know any any zombie film you can think of, which ultimately is about you know one guy is stuck in a house defending himself in that house from flesh eating corpses outside. It's not really about that. It's much more about how how do experts deal with the threat to society, not how does the individual deal with the threat to themselves. Well, it's also um, the other big difference between that is uh, experts, people, citizens, they all have to work within a system and mobilise a system against something like a pandemic. So it's a systemic response. Mm. Whereas zombie films are all about what do you do when the system collapses. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's kind of what happens after the pandemic yeah. outbreak has got out of hand. When society has failed to respond yeah. to it and you are left on your own. It's a very, very good point. And then the other thing I think which is common to these these pandemic breakout movies, which makes them a bit different from zombie films, is the aesthetics of the movie suggest a lot about what the director, what the filmmaker is really talking about or alluding to. In the case of the Andromeda Strain, I think it's pretty clear it's really about the power of the military-industrial complex, specifically the Milai Massacre, but also the power of... Uh, I mean, Crichton is alluding to this in the, in the Andromeda Strain novel, the odd man out thesis by which James Olsen's character Hall is given the second key because he's a single guy. That's a Rand Corporation theory, so really that's kind of cr- criticising the power of the Rand Corporation over the US military and privatisation of military power. Uh, the fact that the scientists in the Andromeda strain are civilians with control of a nuclear weapon, which is something that Crichton's obviously sort of foreseeing, but also critical of in the novel. This film, uh, and this isn't subtext, this is text, the reason that Marquez, given the, the choice of any subject matter that he could write a movie about, chose to adapt Defoe's book is that he says he's very interested in, in how people respond to society falling apart and particularly the kind of head, the hedonism when people are left with no other option but to kind of think about well you know these are my last days on earth how people just kind of get distracted by furniture nightclubs nice food boys, girls you know whatever it is I wouldn't be mind being distracted by some nice food. What kind of nice food would you like? What have we not been able to eat while we've been doses. in quarantine? Doses, yeah. Yeah, we could go into Dundee and get a doser. Um, I'm not that keen to get a doser. You want a doser, but it's not worth dying for. No, it's really not. Well, in this film of Defoe's novel... People are making many choices, putting their safety ahead of really any kind of logic, I think. Something I find very interesting about this movie is when you look at movies based on Defoe's books, there are quite a few of Robinson Crusoe. Uh, There was a Mole Flanders that the BBC did. But there's, this is the only movie of... Uh, oh, that's interesting. Of the Germans of the Plague, yeah. 
set in Mexico, not set in London in the 18th century. It's a very good book. Uh, I mean, while people are in quarantine around the world, perhaps listening to this podcast, maybe you don't want to just kind of compound your misery by reading an 18th century book about two plagues that beset London. But there's a lot in them which is still relevant and I think demonstrates how how little really societies learn about dealing with uh, pandemic breakouts. Particularly in terms of this question about people prioritising things which sort of on on balance are a bit trivial perhaps. So we've got this kind of groovy computer writing which now we're living in the future we don't have no that kind of writing now obviously I love this this bit at the start because it's um it's a subway in Mexico City never happier than when seeing you do like a nice shot of a subway don't you and people standing look this lovely roving shot down a a subway car in 1978 in Mexico City there's a guy on the train it's very very crowded he's looking a bit peaky oh and he's fallen over help me lady's pulling the alarm to stop the train yeah it sort of starts in the middle of the action really you don't really um, see a sort of conventional start where you know this this camera's following this guy already and it establishes that it's a main car he's a main character in the film and you see him go about his day and then he no he just sort of it just sort of starts smack dab in the middle in that sense it's quite um reminiscent of uh contagion the yeah uh, really film. yes and it has something in common with the andromeda strain in that just stuff happens i mean there's no yeah. kind of rhyme or reason it's just like people just die in this movie and a lot of characters come in and out and you don't know who's going to make it yeah, who isn't going to make I it i think i think this is also why um these films are so interesting because they don't they almost act as if the events in the film would go on regardless of whether there was an audience or not. Yeah. It doesn't pander to you foremost as someone who's watching the film. Yes. It's as if the film's just going on and you've just been privileged enough to be um, able to access it in that particular moment. Yes. So they've got bodies of people who've now died of this mysterious plague that's sweeping Mexico City. And yes, and unlike the uh, Mexican Batwoman film, people in the morgue are properly attired. Um, unlike Mexican Batwoman, where she hangs out in uh, autopsy rooms in her bat bikini. Not, not really practical or safe. She's taking perhaps a, sl- a slightly sort of blasé attitude towards herd, herd immunity oh yes well. ironic also because she's dressed as a bat which uh, as we know is one of the major causes of these transgenic viruses bats and pigs 
Now we've got surgery. There's a lot of groovy furnishings. This is a white leather sofa that uh, the mayor of Mexico City is sitting on. There are quite interesting tonal shifts in this film, not only in terms of you know, one minute you're in a morgue or a, in surgery and it's quite a grim hospital environment and then suddenly you're in this very plush, white, uh, it's very mid-70s, isn't it, this decor. But you have sudden tonal shifts not only in terms of what's going on in the drama and the plot, but also in terms of the, the decor. Yes. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting double bill with The Andromeda's Train. Because in The Andromeda's Train, you're obviously um, looking at how a very small group of people, the scientists, are dealing with the virus in a in almost a perfect environment perfect in the sense yes. that it is calibrated controlled steel steel and it is everything is designed to sort of contain and destroy the virus whereas this film is almost as of what happens after so if the virus has got out now it's a much larger and more diverse group of people, so bureaucrats, medical professionals, doctors, nurses, now having to deal with the virus in an imperfect environment, which isn't controlled, or at least isn't controlled uh, in their favour. So well, the first film is them dealing with the virus in an environment that's designed to give the people... Uh, the human beings to control over the situation, whereas in this film, they're manage they're trying to contain the virus in an advantage, um, in a position that's most advantageous for the virus to transmit. In Mexico City, yeah, a hugely populous, still developing country. One of the things I really liked about that most recent Terminator movie was moving the. Moving the events to Mexico, yes. Mexico City. I thought that was such a... And not a making a big deal out of it. Why not make a major Hollywood science fiction movie about Mexico? I mean, yeah. it's, it's weird that it hasn't happened before, that movie. Also, I mean, we, we hear so much about the idea that American audiences don't like um, subtitled films. Yeah. And yet, this is, you know, a major mainstream Hollywood franchise film. And half of it is in Spanish. I like that Terminator yeah, movie. It's great. I, yeah. It's a shame yeah, it's it didn't really get the love I think it deserved because I, th I think it was putting the Terminator movies back on track. Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, an environment which is 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 not uh, on point, I think a lot of the ladies' makeup in this. I mean, the nurse in the we've just cut from a, a morgue scene. We're now in somebody's flat in Mexico City. We're seeing some nice kind of brutalist uh, public architecture in flats and the back of a look at the back of her telly that's what that's what cathode ray tellies used to look like <laughs> but the ladies makeup in this I think really pops it looks quite that's quite modern the nurse, I was going to say before you even mentioned makeup but then I stopped myself because I have been looking at makeup the whole day but I think the makeup in this movie in, in Felipe Casals movie uh, is it's part of what we're talking about that 
what Marquez said about writing the script was he was interested in how people almost kind of retreat into themselves, retreat into their own little worlds when yes. uh, society is faced with some kind of systemic threat like this, in this case it's a virus. And the fashions in this movie, which are very... Oh, bell-bottom denims! Guys carrying a kid down some stairs. Not just bell-bottom, acid-wash bell-bottom. Yeah, it's the whole jeans look. He's got the jeans jacket... He's got the jeans. He's got the jeans look moustache. Is that a full Zapata? <laughs> I mean, there's a risk of falling back on stereotypes, but this is a film shot in Mexico in 1978, and that is, I think, a Zapata moustache. But so now the journalist uh, who's interviewing this uh, dad, what a jaunty cheese-cutter cap, and she's got it at a jaunty angle as well. What do you think of her eye makeup? It's great. It's very 70s. I mean, this is not ideal radio talking about makeup. <laughs> what, how would you describe uh, makeup of that period as distinct from others? Um, it looks very different from the kind of makeup that's uh, very much in vogue now, which is uh, very um, bright, vivid colours on your eyes and. Um, very strong um, sort of bronzed highlighter contour everything poppy. everything looks quite warm toned mm. everything looks quite sort of warm toned sort of almost orange um, whereas the makeup here is very um, it's designed to uh, accentuate your features without drawing attention to the fact that you're wearing makeup so 70s makeup is designed to not look... It's a kind of conspicuous no-makeup look. Yes. I'm with you. Which is quite hard to do. And I think a lot of the reason why, not just the makeup, but a lot of the fashion and design choices in this very 70s, very sexual South American movie... I mean, any frame of this, you could freeze-frame it, you'd know exactly which continent it was made on and and when as well everything in it is very oh look at those and mate what the heck are those so we've got the plush carpet on the wooden stair risers and there was some kind of huge wooden sculpture thing made out of what were they they looked like kind of like wooden ice cube sections like if you got a wooden ice cube and just saw it down the middle i wouldn't be surprised if they were um like almost like little sofas on the wall covered in leather and look at that, uh, the old-fashioned, the 70s rotary phone. What what colour is that? Is that veal? <laughs> it's like some kind of... It's it's cardboard, but it's cardboard that's it's been chewed by a wasp. Oatmeal. Yeah. Wasp oatmeal. Chewed up oatmeal. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the uh, hi-fi in the background there with the lovely brushed... brushed steel... Uh, finger plate around your pots all the world loves a pot something we should mention if people go online and watch this I'll put a link up is uh, there aren't any subs there aren't any subtitles so I've made some and the one the ones I've made are quite ropey <laughs> it has to be said that uh, 
Yes, I'm, I'm guessing the original dialogue doesn't mean they go like the milk. Quite. I mean, I get the idea. I mean, is uh, is does that mean your people sort of expiring like milk does? Or yeah, I think it does. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I have to apologise to you that uh, mi español uh, es mal. As I'm not, I'm not a Spanish speaker really. I mean, I've, I can muddle by and tour with Spanish, but um, I'll fix these at some point and put them online. But I mean, look, like, this like whole most... enterprise is very transnational, so. Yes. Wow, so now now the dad has rushed into a big cap and look at that vinyl wallpaper. It's kind of aubergine and celery coloured and uh, I remember we had wallpaper like that in my house when Um, I was four. It reminds me of uh, when I had a layover at uh, Bahrain Airport and... um, for some reason, I think I had I accidentally ended up in the in one of the smoking sections, and the ceiling was just just covered in about twenty layers of nicotine and smoke. That that's what that color reminds me of. Now we've got a, a, the kid, the father's child. Who's in a in a kind of thermobaric tent in the hospital, and various doctors are now hovering around, talking about what's up with this little kid. And rather like Casal's much more political movie. Not that this isn't political, but his other movie, which is much more obviously political because it's about real events, um, the Kanawha massacre, which occurred ten days before the the. Chattaloco massacre, one of the defining events of recent Mexican politics. Um, one of the things that he does is he just he just depicts all these events as it's all very kind of episodic and it's, it's very all quite normal. Fact and, yeah. There's no music. Yeah. Uh, we have music in the titles, but there's no score. Um. I don't know for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was a major influence on the um, Soderbergh film, Pandemic. Yeah, I bet it was. Pandemic's really good in the first half. In the second half, it sort of slightly descends into sort of World War Z territory. Um, But the first half of the film is quite interesting. And again, like very, quite chilling because it's very matter of fact. Yes, it's the matter of factness about this movie that we're watching now, which I think is the thing that's quite chilling about it. As we'll get to um, a scene in a moment where people standing around basically discussing the plot and not very much apparently happening. Like, we know there's a little kid now in hospital who's... We know there's a little kid who's in hospital who's ill, but, you know, we haven't had people hemorrhaging up blood or... uh, There's no actual suggestion that anyone's ill so far in this film we know they are but we haven't seen evidence of it what, so how is um, the Soderbergh film like World War Z in what sense well in the um, <clears throat> it's tonally it's a little confused again the, the first half is very impressive and it doesn't um, you know spoiler alert please skip 
if you don't want to listen to any spoilers um but it does a it does a big game of thrones type moment where you see a uh, film opens with Gwyneth Paltrow and it's Gwyneth Paltrow so you expect expect her to be the protagonist of the film yeah and then five minutes into it she dies what and then she in in the last 20 minutes of the film she comes back she wasn't dead and then she hooks up with some pirates <laughs> and does she get some kind of like cannon that you use to shoot at the virus and destroy it is that where you're going with this so to Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, is married to Matt Damon's character and they have two kids a boy and a girl so in the first five minutes we see Gwyneth Paltrow dying and then uh, by the time they figure out what's going on uh, she's given it to their son who mm. also dies mm. um, and it's just Matt Damon uh, who ends up being immune to the virus and their daughter as well um, so in the second half of the film it sort of descends into you know uh, you know city descends into chaos and it's it's the typical shot from zombie or pandemic films of people rushing to the bridge to yeah. the border and they're like oh you know please let us through I'm immune and you know soldiers uh, pushing people back and uh, telling people that the borders are closed and so it goes into um, sort of um, sort of cliche territory but the, the first half of the, half of the film is quite interesting um, and from what I understand also does a fairly good job of being authentic in terms of the terminology and the science, it uses yeah. and the science and also the fact that you, it has Kate Winslow playing a um, WHO employee uh, and then she also dies in the film Shall we tell our World War Z story? It's not really a story so much as a bon mot So we saw it on a bus Oh God We'd gone to stay in uh, the Himalayas in a little chalet had a lovely, very We lovely were travelling from Delhi to uh, Nadi But it was afterwards so when we were coming back from Nadi to go back to Delhi to then go home and the, so the bus was winding down all oh. the uh, Himalayan roads, which are, you know, modern, perfectly good roads, but they're going at the steepest incline there is on earth, and also they're quite windy. So we were, we were in this uh, bus mainly with Punjabi families who just had a weekend in the, in the Himalayas and were going home. And quite disturbingly, given that there were a lot of kids on the plane, they were playing World War Z on the overhead TV monitors and so you have this combination of people turning into zombies and ripping each other's face off on the TV screens and people vomiting and I was trying very hard to vomit so it's incredibly which wasn't powerful. helped by the sounds of retching yeah we should uh, oh, probably God. have thought of a trigger warning before I started with this story but yeah there's a com <laughs> combination of actual <laughs> body fluids yes. and, and sputum and vomit oh. everywhere and eventually the bus was just coated with um, human human uh, bile and, uh, yeah, projectile vomiting. That was going on. But then you also had, you know, plane full of people all get turned into zombies and what's Brad Pitt going to do? So it's quite odd that 
the things outside the frame of the and also I was feeling quite nauseous and sleepy <laughs> so I was trying to watch this movie about zombies whilst what was going on around me outside of the frame of the movie was a bit like a kind of very 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 low rent zombie apocalypse but not so much World War Z as World War Vom I, or whatever the Punjabi for vomit is um, I mean this is a memory that I had tried to very in the deepest recesses of my mind. Well, I'm very, I'm very pleased and proud to have, have unearthed it. <laughs> let us, let us hold it up so anyone on the internet can now relive this experience with yeah, us. Yeah, next time we're flying. Yeah, fly there, yeah, or walk. Anyway, back to this film. So now we've got uh, a press conference where public officials are. Bell bottom after bell bottom after bell bottom. I mean that guy on there again. This is terrific radio, <laughs> but there's there's a guy on the right here in this big press conference outside with all these public officials in different, very well pressed suits, all walking. But the guy on the right there with the kind of um, beard with no moustache and his bell bottoms. Well, that's basically a kind of cream tent. But again, what what colour was that? And what colour is this this sort of very dramatic Le Corbusian concrete? parking structure type thing that, that these two officials are now walking through that's sort of like a, a series of ramps but some of them are, are painted orange what colours are we dealing with? They're getting more grey This is like a, a you know lovely eyeshadow palette It is. It looks like every eyeshadow palette on the internet right now What? So if people are watching this and wondering you know, what, what different Grades of brown and grey. Am I going to see all the browns? All the browns. All of them. All the yeah. greys. So now the, these people have gone into a screening room, and this sequence I think is very interesting in terms of um, Felipe Casal's technique. That it it copies in many ways what he does in Cano, which is just to have this kind of quite plodding, quite episodic, quite matter of fact progression of events escalating towards something that's very dramatic but you have a lot of periods of sort of pause and repose and reflection where journalists or public officials uh, stop and think about what's going on and talk about it so here we've got doctors now just discussing what is happening with the outbreak in Mexico City saying arithmetic doesn't doesn't tell you much about the the outbreak. Now we've got people in a lecture hall watching a, a slideshow about historic plagues in history. And they're looking at all these slide projections of old woodcuts of 14th century, 25 million dead, China, Mongolia, India. In 1894 in Hong Kong, 100,000 dead. So they're just kind of going through this um, litany of plagues in history and our memory of that, which is the impact of it, is stored in these woodcuts, in these old pictures, in much the same way that our memory of the plagues which affected London in the 17th century are recorded in Defoe's very fine novel, yes. The Diary of a Plague Year. And that's an interesting point, an interesting inflection point in this film, I think, where Marquez's script is really sort of deliberately invoking Defoe. 
or at least the kind of legacy of Defoe's book, which is to use oral transmission, and in this case visual transmission, of information about how viruses work. And the scale of it is the scale that's so interesting. So as somebody who's had some sort of scientific training, and we talk, when we talked about the Andromeda strain, we talked about how good it is as a movie which conveys how science actually deals with an emergency, which is to be quite methodical, to be quite quite practical and very evidence-led. Um, what do you think of this sequence relative to this kind of quite, almost sort of meandering lead-up we've had to it? Because it's only it's people sitting watching. I mean, the images we're now seeing of actual infection are getting more and more graphic and quite nasty, actually. And there's an infected ear. Oh dear! Yeah, yeah. that's the view bay, which is why it's called the bubonic plague. So, so how do you feel I, I about how this is kind of located within the, the way that the, this movie has very slowly built to this realisation? Again, I think it sort of connects to what I was saying earlier, that the Andromeda strain is almost like a, it's almost like a utopian film mm. in that sense, because it's, um, it's science working in a very controlled environment yes. in which science is free to just obey the laws of science without... Um, I mean, we do see, uh, they do talk about how, um, you know, the, the the factor that causes turbulence in that equation is human behaviour. Yes. It's the, it's how irrational and emotional human beings can be in those situations, which that film does touch upon. But for the most part, the film is almost... Um, you know what happens when science can do, just do its job in a perfect environment i mean our responses to epidemics often go wrong or i should say take it's it takes us as a society it takes us a bit of time to work out how to respond to these situations because we are we are the uncertainty in that system if that makes sense absolutely so now we've got a sequence which kind of proves your point colour yellow look it's these guys in these yellow uniforms who are now responding to the fact that truck drivers might be carrying infected stuff and they're wearing all these must be said quite groovy 70s hazmat suits which are yellow and they're going through all the stuff on the trucks sacks full of farming produce and then you've got this kind of incessant noise in the background of this kind of uh, this uh, alarm and this is I think what you're talking about which is because people have carried on as though everything's normal and the state hasn't intervened in time and applied all these principles now you're having to do these quite draconian excessive things sending in kind of masked state troopers in in hazmat suits to go through everything on trucks yeah and the the thing is we will our responses will never be perfect mm. because human responses are not mechanical they are you know we are clouded our judgment is clouded by emotions and 
but we are wa- we are watching a group of people standing around piles of crates which are now covered in yellow foam. I mean, that's quite disco in a lot of ways. You can imagine that happening at Studio Fifty Four. So the imagery in this film is not sexy, no, but it is strangely arresting. Yes, I think, and he uses colour and sound very effectively in that way. Now we've got people basically fleeing. We've got people in the airport in Mexico City. And somebody's now having to um, say goodbye to their wife when we know this guy's having an affair on the side as well. Decadence, you see. But yeah, I think that that's the sort of... Uh, that's what I find interesting when these we look at these films, these two films side by side is the Andromeda strain is functioning within almost a perfect system um, where there isn't much of an interference in form of uh, human behaviour. Whereas with an epidemic, that's not how it works. You're You're not inside a laboratory. You have to communicate. Um, Often quite difficult to understand scientific concepts uh, and hard to follow rules that people often don't want to follow because you know it's not it's not very pleasant but there isn't any time so you're having to societies have to enforce these hard to follow uh, rules quite quickly and quite firmly well, of course, the- because you know as human beings people don't just go well, scientist on television has told me exactly what to do. Yeah. I'm going to follow that advice perfectly. That's not what happens. Something that I think allows us to try and convey this sort of imminent sense of threat is the use of colour in this film. Yes. That you've got every, everyone kind of carrying on as if everything's normal. Getting back to normal. Uh, I mean, here we've got a lady shopping with her kid in a shopping cart in a supermarket. And yellow, he uses yellow a lot in this movie to just look. So this whole uh, product display of of objects and the little boy who is in the shopping cart with his mum wheeling him around, uh, he's got hold of something. Yeah, he's picking something up off a shelf and it's yellow. I think it's trying to sort of convey the fact that if people aren't given proper information, then they'll just carry on as normal and then they'll get sick. Yeah, but often also I think people sometimes carry on as normal even when they do have proper information. information yeah. I mean, that, that's sort of the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. That, I mean, it's like uh, economics. That often the laws of economics don't really work and that's why there, have been, there was such a shift a few decades ago to behavioural economics. Yes. Because you have to factor into the system that, you know, human behaviour. So now we've got the shot of the the pandemic's getting worse and so these guys in yellow hazmat suits are going into this incredibly groovy apartment. Look at those potted plants. It's basically like a rainforest in there. (laughs) And um, glass coffee tables... Uh, again, all the brown and grey furnishing that the mind can conceive. 
there's just this shot of them spraying urine coloured foam all over a uh, oatmeal covered toilet and this isn't like small foam it's huge yeah they're filling a bathroom with foam it's quite a Ken Russell image actually isn't it it looks like something out of Tommy and it just sort of seems to go on so now we've got the whole apartment just just <laughs> it's completely full of foam <laughs> I like this movie I think it I, I hope people check it out I mean it, the thing is you can find it all on YouTube but I've got to sort out subtitles for it but I think it, oh wow now it's now there's just this shot of the phone's building <laughs> like literally we're, we're on the like you know the, the, the 10th or 12th floor of this modern apartment building in Mexico City and just the foam is taking over the room they've literally filled an entire they've done this for real haven't they I, I love this I love the scene I love it, how it just goes on and so now another one of Pazal's uh, preoccupations, which is the media. So in Kanoa, it's journalists sort of narrating the massacre, but being rather ineffectual in how they respond to the obvious growing threat of political extremism. Uh, but here we've got the television station. This is quite eerie in that it, it it's almost a prediction of how... Uh, television presenters who are quite sort of bellicose in their style naming no names the Donald um, end up at least not providing the public with, with useful information but actually kind of stirring the pot of the public anxiety so now we've got this, uh, this TV calling show yeah, I think it's a very interesting movie and I'll try and sort out subtitles. I think it would be good if people enjoy The Andromeda Strain just to give this Mexican film a look as well because there are a lot of sort of similar themes. I think uh, the use of colour is yeah. one of them. Uh, and the sort of the way that the decor suggests what the attitude of a lot of people is to a threat. And the big difference is, as you're... I think you're making a very uh, precipient point that the Andromeda strain, the interiors are all steel and it's all sterile and clinical. It's the, like the way that the Rand Corporation or the US military was projecting its force through metal missiles and metal machinery that was designed for war and mass killing. Whereas in this film about Mexico City, only from, you know, a uh, uh, Less than 10 years after the political turmoil in Mexico in 68-69, but also only 7 or 8 years after the Andromeda strain was made. The threat here is much more just people muddling by. That all the kind of, the, the nice things, the nice sofas and the nightclubs and the, the groovy fashions, no, nothing really is interrupted. And then the, the foam and the, this sort of pus-coloured <laughs> it's just like something that strayed into this quite serious movie from a John Waters movie. I I think it actually looks quite relaxing. Yes, now, I mean, yeah, I think if, if someone just puts a hour long 
ASMR style video on YouTube <laughs> of apartments just being covered in foam slowly. I think a lot of people would just watch it. I mean, if you've got to die in a pandemic, you well, might as well yeah, do it in a kind of do it in style. 70s themed foam party. I mean, you can stretch the metaphor to, again, uh, between the Andromeda strain and this film, in the Andromeda strain. Uh, I mean, uh, there's, there is the last shot of the film which implies that the virus has uh, evolved. But for the most part, that film is, again, about containment. Um, but this film sort of it basically I, I think this film sort of says that uh, especially with something like a virus there is only so much that governments can do to contain not just the virus or the uh, epidemic itself but also information that governments or the military industrial complex or whatever there's only so long that they can keep this information contained. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, it's quite a serious point to end on, but these are serious times, and I think that's probably, you know, if by, by making this two-part podcast and looking at these two movies and encouraging people to watch them, because they're great movies, I think if there's any kind of message in them or anything to, to convey, it's just serious matters deserve to be dealt with seriously. Would you concur? Uh, yes, but can I deal with them in some fantastic bell-bottom trousers? Why not? Do Should... they call them bell-bottoms here? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's what we call them in India. Sure. Why not? You know, I, I want to I wanna fight a pandemic in... Fantastic acid wash denim and in my snazzy uh, denim shirt. I want to. I want to. You know, go out in a Canadian tuxedo. A jeans look hazmat suit. <laughs> You'd look great in a Zapata moustache. Yeah, you should do that. Draw us. Draw us a moustache on yourself when we finish recording. Yeah, I'm. I'm now picturing uh, the Ghostbusters, <laughs> but you know, in complete head to toe denim gear. And the the pack uh, doesn't open up to suck in uh, go uh, 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 an entity, yeah. but uh, uh, expels foam. And yeah. They just go in and they just foam the shit out of New York. The foam the colour of cat urine. <laughs> Shruti, thank you so much, as ever, for joining me to talk about these movies. And uh, at the moment, listen to a bit of bit of Studio One. This is uh, Jennifer Lara, I Am In Love, from 1981. Who doesn't like a bit of Studio One, Jamaican Scar, Lovers Rock? I, mean, you know, I have exerted myself greatly 
walking from the bedroom to our living room to record the show. So, you know, the least you can do is... Put a bit of Lover's Rock on as the, as the sound bed. Uh, here's my Jamaican music joke. I like both kinds of music, dub and Lover's Rock. I think only people who are quite serious, quite hardcore Jamaican ska aficionados would get that. Uh, it's a, isn't this a lovely track? It's fantastic. Jennifer Lara, she very, she's very interesting, very savvy. She died at 52 in 2005. Uh, sister of Derek Lara from the Tamlins, another uh, wonderful dub combo, who also died in February this year. It's, it's very, very sad. sad. Uh, but, you know, lovely track. And also, I was thinking about, I mean, as well as the sort of serious stuff we talked about to do with science, which is, I think, the main thing that we should be thinking about is facts and how to actually deal with stuff. People are also indoors a lot, thinking and, you know, remembering the past and reflecting on CDs they bought, books they read, movies they saw. And uh, there are little things which crop up in these movies which they're little kind of little presents from the past, little Easter eggs that we've forgotten about uh, in the Andromeda strain. It's the wonderful music of Gil Malay. And you heard him uh, demonstrating his percussitron at the start of this podcast. I've made an extra for these podcasts. I've made an even more music for films, which is a compendium of music by not only Gil Malay, but also other people that did music for the Bionic Man and... Uh, Columbo, of course, he did some episodes of. I mean, the composers that they had working for those shows in the mid seventies, when you know, around the time these two movies were made, it's amazing. Billy Goldenberg, Oliver Nelson, who did the the Six Million Dollar Man music, Henry Mancini, Mike Post, who went on to do the Hill Street Blues theme. I think it's the best theme. Serious musicians, and and also who have made a kind of an impression on. The public consciousness of the world, but in a way which is often not brought up or not kind of signposted, and uh, quite like Jamaican music. I mean, Studio One is the Motown of of Jamaica in a lot of ways, and it's kind of it's an ever-present thing in our lives. But we don't often. I like sometimes in these shows to talk about um, dub and Jamaican artists because I'm a big fan in the same way that I am a big fan of gospel and. R&B and funk and things like that and we don't often just mention these artists or sort of remember the impact they had on our lives I mean it's in, it, it, I was thinking about I was listening to this and sort of similar tracks from around this period 1980-81 and thinking yeah you're not going to hear this in Stranger Things no. there's not going to be a bit in Stranger Things where it cuts to you know some kind of crazy fight with the Russians in a mall and the music is um, Mama Used to Say, Junior, or something like that. Uh, but, there, but there is music even of that period of the 80s, which is certainly buried in our consciousness. Or just that Jamaican sound. I mean, you were singing um, Koi Koi Chan from Shaitan. That kick drum noise, that yeah. kind of kettle drum noise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, but it's it's interesting. It's like one of those things, like the um, the sort of mariachi brass sound in Berman's 
scores in Bollywood uh, since we've been looking at a Mexican movie. But where did that come from? Like, I mean, there's brass bands are a big thing in India, yes. but you don't often hear a sort of Portuguese influenced sound. Probably from clubs. Also, uh, you know, the fact that Bombay had a um, very uh, vibrant jazz scene mm. in the 40s with um, international artists coming from all over the world to perform in Bombay. I'm guessing there might have been a similar scene in the 60s and 70s. And that's also created a culture amongst Indian composers and musicians. Yes. Who, I mean, in Berman's case, very serious classical musical family, but at the same time as that, um, big oh, fan yeah. of just cool stuff. Yeah. The lovely bit in that, the Berman documentary that Channel 4 did uh, four years ago, where he was such a huge fan of Xanadu that he went to, to go and see it like three or four times and then all his friends would come round and Burma would, would cook up these huge curries for everybody and he wouldn't stop talking about how great Xanadu is. And he was right, it is, I love Xanadu. I mean, Xanadu is a very... Um, I can see why someone uh, from... Uh, a, a fan of Bollywood would like Xanadu. It's a very filmy film, um, which sounds kind of stupid. But it's it's a, a filmy uh, f i l m i is something that's film like or um, very theatrical in that sense um, um, is what we refer to as um, films which have got like a bit of everything. Xanadu's got a bit of everything. Gene Kelly fantasy, in a roller disco. Dancing. It's got brilliant music Scott Olivia Newton-John dressed up like Dolly Parton yeah a, a, a Don Bluth animation scene. yeah it's, it's you know four films for the price of one film so I can see why um, it's the way that guy gets that. away with he's got the kind of Leaf Garrett feather cut blonde hair but he also gets away with the uh, the sort of British pub rock thing of, of evening dress waistcoat dress shirt jeans yes there's a lot of big collar jumper action in that film as well, and Xanadu. Yes, so many reasons why Audie Burma would have been a, a big fan of Xanadu, a great movie. But yeah, it's, it's fun exploring these sort of things which are there as little Easter eggs, and you discover through looking at, at old films or talking about what a couple of films have got in common. And one of the things that we've talked about, and I've really enjoyed exploring with you, Shruti, is the music of Gil Malay. So there's an even more music for films special that I made. It's about 40 minutes. I've, I've also put the, the um, George Duke Hammond organ-tastic version of the Six Million Dollar Man theme as well is uh, on there as well. There's that to explore. But also, and I'm, we'll use this as the play-out music, the, the library music of John Cameron. Oh, fantastic. And, and uh, Liquid Sunshine. I think with the music that created for television or used in television primarily. I think it helps to have distance from it. Um, I think this, is, this must be quite common that people often discover great music that was created for television years after the show was um, on air, so to speak. Because I think when something, when you're watching, you know, for example, you know, we're both uh, big fans of Better Call Saul and obviously 
you know the music enhances our experience of watching the show but we are watching when we are watching it now i think the the sort of narrative of it um, overwhelms mm. other things that we might not notice mm. but then when you know the shows are five years old or ten years old or when you're looking up a show that you watched 20 years ago I think uh, you tend to notice the music more because it's not sort of uh, swamped overshadowed by the narrative it's also interesting the kinds of films that we used to discover because BBC 2 or Channel 4 would put them on compared with films that you discover through YouTube just because you can find them so this Felipe Casals movie was not on British television to my knowledge but now you can just find it online and watch it but you can't find decent subs for it whereas I saw The Andromeda Strain because it was on television late at night when I was a kid so I think it applies for movies as well yeah well it's been as ever a pleasure and a delight exploring all these things with you surety and also I appreciate the fact that we've, we've talked about some very serious issues. I've benefited from your knowledge and your insights, given your sort of unique background. Oh, that's very kind of it's, I mean, it's true. It's, uh, it's a kind of odd thing to say to your significant other when you're making a podcast. But it is true. Like, I mean, I learn a lot about the mindset, the thoughtfulness and the sort of systemic attitude of scientists, which, as a son of somebody who was scientifically trained and now living with someone with scientific training... Uh, I respect, I appreciate, but most of all, I need, because without science, we would die. Uh, on that note, I just want to say to you and everyone who's listening, wash your fucking hands. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, it's easy to forget these things. It's easy to forget just to wash your hands. And to tile this up... Uh, do you know what the name of this John Cameron track is? This library music track? No. Half Forgotten Daydreams. It all connects. Well, on that dreamy, Proustian bombshell, surety, thank you for watching these two movies with me. And uh, let's do it again. Sure. podcast is more music for films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice